0: You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 635, The Greatest Night in Pop, The Fifth Beatle, Band on the Run, Underdubbed, and an Eventful Night at the Theater. That's all coming up after Badly Drawn Boy and Disillusion.
1: Seems you created your-
2: A rare moment in our history when I wish we were visual as well as audio, because this track has one of the greatest videos ever made to accompany Mm. it. Um, He's touring just about every corner of the country in 2024, Mm. including some festivals in the summer. As a single, this reached 26 in the UK in 2000 from the album The Hour of Bewilderbeast, Mm. Badly Drawn Boy and Disillusioned.
3: That's a lovely album. I often find myself listening to it, actually. It's one of those albums that I used to listen to a lot when I was young, as a result of which I can, um, I can work to it quite easily, because it just sort of happens in the background, really, for me. But it is, that's, a sign of, that's a sign of great, and that's, that's a great compliment for me if, I can, if something just becomes background for me, because it means I really love it. So, uh, no, he was very talented, and he seemed to lose his way, so I'm glad that he's mm. sort of back and well and touring again. That's good news.
2: Absolutely, and I always forget, you know, I was just checking when I when I picked this this week, Kia um, had 10 um, in a row, 10 top 40 hits in the UK. And
3: he won the yeah. Mercury Music Prize with his first, Absolutely. you know, with, with his first yeah. major album.
2: Absolutely, so yeah, hope um, h- h- any new material and uh, the tour, yeah, hope it all goes well for him. Yeah, good luck. Welcome along to the Parish Council. It's episode 635. Um, uh, I'm Terence Dackham, and now I've got to put on my like smarmy 1980s DJ <laughs> oh, voice now, no. okay? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Here she is. Our beautifully drawn girl It's Juliet Harris.
3: As always, too kind, Sir T. Thank you very much. That's very sweet. Um, And, you know, just as well, this isn't a visual podcast, because I thought that wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. But anyway, hello, everybody.
2: (laughs) Now, if you're going to call your Netflix documentary The Greatest Night in Pop, Mm. then you'd better have some big names up your sleeve. Mm. Well, right from the off, we had Bruce stevie dylan diana ross paul simon Many, many more, we began to see the picture. Back in January 1985, a mass of pop stars gathered at AM Studios at 1416 La Brea Avenue in Hollywood. Mm. Because back in December, a month before, Harry Belafonte decided to follow Bob Geldof's lead uh, mm. from the UK and bring pop stars together to record an American concept of Band Aid. And he brought in a chap called Ken Cragen, who managed. Mm. Many top artists, among them Lionel Richie, who is our guide and narrator, Jules, Mm. in this intriguing documentary just released on Netflix, The Greatest Night in Pop.
3: Yes, indeed. It's a bold old claim, isn't it, frankly? As you say, you've really got to let this stand up, haven't you? But um, yeah, so I, didn't, I knew the song and I knew that it was like the US equivalent of Band-Aid, but I didn't know much else apart from that. So it was good to watch this. So I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a really well-told tale. Firstly, I thought Lionel Richie came across as a really nice man and a really committed man. I just love the fact... There's just nothing there was nothing he couldn't do. So so as the film explains, they ended up recording this on the night of the American Music Awards, which were a big deal at the time, because they worked out that was when the most people were likely to be in the one place. At the same time, so everyone was basically sort of taxied or bussed or got over there afterwards. So poor old Lana Ritchie had hosted the American the the American Music Awards. So he'd hosted the whole AMA's. He had won six awards whilst hosting himself (laughs) whilst hosting the AMA's, reminding himself he was working during one of the acceptance (laughs) speeches, and then really was one of the people that was pulling, through, pulling together this, this evening which they recorded through the night. They eventually finished at 8am um, the next day. Um, it was him that Michael Jackson that, that wrote it together and I thought that there were so many interesting sort of nuggets in this and every t- uh, usually we, we talk about documentaries on here quite a lot, the things that we've seen and how talking heads are often quite a vexatious area aren't there and sometimes it's nice to have documentaries that don't have talking heads every talking head they had in this i was really good actually, and yes. they got some really good ones. I loved the secretaries at um, at your your um, your man Ken sort of place, mm. um, who uh, Ken Crack and the secretaries who said that they that the first inkling they got that something was happening was an unscheduled meeting first thing in the morning, and Harry Balafonte walked in. I mean that was they said that is not a normal start to a day and I love the fact poor Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson him writing this song at Michael Jackson's house with Michael Jackson and having to contend with Michael Jackson's many animals that were around and about including <laughs> the snake that Michael Jackson said had come to say hello whilst Lionel Richie was about to sort of run from the building screaming um though it's interesting who came out of this well and who didn't actually yes. I thought Most people came out of this very well, by and large. Um, As always, you could argue, well, the people that don't participate don't come out of it well because they're not really there to mount a defence. Unusually, and unfortunately, both you and I are big Prince fans, but he did not award you well from Mm -hmm. this, I thought with his sort of refusal to turn up and also everybody else by extension. The person in this documentary that I had the most sympathy for was poor Sheila E., who sang on the chorus of We Are The World and had been told she was going to sing a verse and rather heartbreakingly realised that the only reason they were keeping her there was because they thought she would be able to get Prince along. And once she realised this and Prince wasn't going to come... She left and I thought that was such a pity. I thought that, that left that was the only sour taste I felt emerged from this documentary. Having said that though, really interesting, really fun, incredible footage of all the people performing. And they seemed to get a lot of people kind of involved. And do you know whose stock I felt in, was enhanced by this? And again, this is a sort of the wrong way round, considering who I like and who I moan about on this podcast. Bless Bob Dylan. You know, as, as regular listeners, now I have my issues with Bob and Bob Zubra. But um, he was, bless him, a bit confused as to what was going on. Um, And actually, I think it says a lot about him that despite his obvious confusion, not really knowing what to do, he allowed himself to be coached along by Quincy Jones, who seemed very kind, actually, and seemed very sort of decent and good at corralling people. And Stevie Wonder who Stevie Wonder impersonating Bob Dylan to (laughs) Bob Dylan who was then very entertained by it was rather lovely and then they got some really good stuff out of him and I thought yeah fair play Bob for sticking with it it wasn't his jam but he felt it was important and did it with you know not very much fuss I thought and I'd, I'd rather remind him wasn't quite so keen on Stevie Wonder, A, missing the writing session because he wouldn't ring anybody back, B, turning up at the, what he thought was the writing session and it turned out to be the initial recording session, and then C, trying to rewrite at the recording yes. by inserting something a in Swahili, which had to be pointed out to him, it was for it was raising money for the family in Ethiopia, where they do not speak swahili so so there was there was yeah there was a lot yes. going on, but I, I forgave Stevie when he managed to to do stars in their eyes Bob Dylan, <laughs> and uh, and then thus Coax a great performance from Bob, so that was that was lovely, and also I enjoyed stevie Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles making many jokes at their own expense about their blindness as well, and there was there was much to like in this. it came across as a really kind of special day. I enjoyed the tale of Diana Ross crying at the end and the footage of her crying because she didn't want it to end. I thought it was I thought it was it was lovely this actually. I thought it was really interesting. Um Huey Lewis also a great raconter He seemed like a very good-natured man. If I'd had to stand next to anybody for hours on end, I probably would have picked him, I think. He seemed like a lot of fun. So um and did end up getting Prince's line and made a very good job of it. So mm-hmm. um um, Al Jarreau did not come across well either. He came across as as drunk and drunk and unhelpful. But um, I, I I thought the program was great. You, there is a debate, of course, when we ever we talk about band aid or live aid, we always talk about you know, uh, uh, are the lyrics a bit crass? Would people do that like that now? Probably not. But having said that. I felt that everyone that was doing it was genuinely sincere and was genuinely committed. They said at the end how much money it had raised to date. And it's a ton of money, isn't it? Like 160 million in modern kind of, modern sort of money. And, I, I, you know, I I, I admired it. I admired everybody involved. Um, Made me sad that things turned out for Michael Jackson like they did. Because he came across as, as again, as sincere and committed, and and sort of so talented. So, yes, I liked this a lot. It was really interesting, and the, the amount of footage they had from the day of the recording made this worthwhile. I think because it sort of felt like you were actually there.
2: I I love this documentary so much. I mean, it was, as you say, so many twists, turns, and stories along the way, and. um as you say at the starting point Lionel Richie wanting to write We Are The World with Stevie Wonder couldn't get hold of him so asked Michael Jackson instead whether well, that was quite a stand-in well it was just um, the
3: fact that Quincy Jones said well I'm seeing Michael tomorrow so <laughs> I don't know how yeah I we'll think. just get him along <laughs> yeah
2: and um, also that Lionel based the tempo of the song on rural Britannia yeah, that, was, that a, was a astonishing yeah, uh, revelation brilliant stories from the uh, yes excellent narration by Lionel Richie I thought he was wonderful yeah he was um, really Pretty really nice man. <laughs> yeah, Um yeah. Writing the song at uh, Michael Jackson's house as you save the snake appears, and also um downstairs the minor bird was yes. having a big argument with the dog uh, while <laughs> they're trying to try write this thing. All
3: this, this barking in the background. Yeah. Poor old Dion, Dion, Warwick having to sing against herself in the in the micro in the headphones because the playback went wrong yes. as well. A lot of there were not. Although, bless, they, they must have gone fairly smoothly because they talked that out as a massive moment and it seemed to be resolved fairly quickly from what yeah, I was. It was, yeah, it was so, fascinating
2: yeah. fascinating how Quincy Jones um, mapped out uh, the recording. He sort of identified mm. Cindy Lauper and Stevie Wonder as potential troublemakers. And in yes. the end, it, it, as you mentioned, it was Al Jarreau who was the most annoying person yes. present. There was a great quote, too, from Paul Simon referring to the yes. number of. Celebrities in the building. He said, "If a bomb lands on this place, Then John Denver is back on top," which yes, actually made that, me laugh out loud. That was you know? an
3: excellent quote. Yeah. I thought, and very true as well, because actually, everyone involved was 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 more from the sort of pop era, I suppose. Ray Charles, my and Harry Harry Belafonte. Oh, the singing everyone singing to Harry oh, Belafonte yeah. was, that was, that sweet. Was, was was very sweet as well. It seemed very considering how many egos there were there. It seemed very good natured. I thought.
2: Very clever of Quincy Jones to post up a notice saying "Check yeah. your ego at the door," yeah, which, as, it's, it's, as you say, everybody seemed to do. A couple of final points from me. I mean, first of all, uh, everybody looks so young, which is they? an obvious thing to say, but it was just—it was quite. That was quite moving, and
3: and of course, well, 38 years ago, isn't it? So, so yes, yeah, so, well, yeah. 38 years. yes. Yeah. So, I
2: mean, so many of those involved in USA for Africa are still with us after yeah. 38. Straightforward 40
3: years yeah um, Incredible. Yeah. there was a nice there was a nice in loving memory of at the end yes. and the pointer sisters um you know rachel's various people that weren't with us anymore which is rather lovely i thought
2: Lionel richard very moving and amusing as our guide and executive producer the greatest night in pop it's on netflix now um at a supplementary thought, Jules, I—I I, mm. I, I know we have charity singles from time to time, but why do we no longer have these blockbuster get-togethers or indeed gigs like Live Aid? What, what? I wonder what's, what's well. The
3: I'm I'm going to be a little bit downbeat on this one yeah. and say that this is sort of what I've been kind of complaining about for years about the lack of sort of the lack of live the lack of live venues, smaller live venues, and I've been warning for years that it will result in the infrastructure being squeezed and there being less big stars. I don't know if there are that many worldwide stars anymore. When you looked at the forty people in that, in that yeah. lineup, I was trying to think who the modern equivalent, who would be forty world famous people that you would have today. And I'm not sure if you could get to 40, to be honest, to be, to That's be brutal a very good point. in terms yeah. of people that would have that style quality. Um, some of the people around are still involved, Springsteen, you would probably get again, I would think. Whether or not Bob didn't bless him would agree again, I don't know, <laughs> but you could you could try him. And then, you know, you would have Beyonce and Taylor Swift and, and Adele probably, but and Elton John and Paul McCartney. But I was trying Ed Sheeran probably, but I was trying to think of and maybe a cold play in that. But I was just thinking, would you have that many worldwide famous people that would be able to fill that record, that record, and then fill a stadium? I don't know. The we we uh, interestingly mm. the royals here in Britain try to they, whenever they have big party at the palaces, the biggest oh, yeah. occasions, they try and get people to sort of play at the concert, don't they? And increasingly, the big names won't go so i don't know if that's an anti royal yeah, sentiment point. thing so yeah. i don't know and and also another argument you could say when people sort of performing performing less perhaps would people i i don't know if people want to perform live anymore it's an enormous risk performing around the whole world and in this very risk averse sort of world and 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 you know and this was done at a time when pop mu- music was enormous. Record companies were flush with money. It felt like the good times would never end. Everything feels so precarious now. Would yeah. it Would the, the styles of our age, and also? And you know, admirably so. A lot of stars are more sort of in touch with their mental health now. Lewis Capaldi's bit the likable Lewis Capaldi's, has been very open about his issues with mental health. Will people want to expose themselves like that? Will people want to take the risk of performing badly and, and finishing their careers? If if Taylor Swift had a shocker. Would that finish her? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I'm not sure if that is the reason or not. And also maybe perhaps insurance and in a oh, post-COVID yeah. world as well. You know, what how would you get people insured against illness? I don't know. But it, it feels how sad that that we've moved on technologically in so many ways. Yet it feels I don't know. It, it, it the world the world the the frontiers feel feel narrower than they did then. I think.
2: Yeah, no, you make you make very good points. I'm sure um, you you've hit the heart of it there. Coming right up, mm. an archive of Stuart Sutcliffe's work goes up for sale, mm. and we listen to Band on the Run underdubbed. That's right after Susie and the Banshees. She
0: tries with the shatter, it's a stranger inside Help forcing enforcing a modern disguise Christine, the strawberry girl Christine, the honest good lady Christine, the strawberry girl Christine, the honest good lady turtle disintegrating Christy
3: Time I read something at work or in any context that mentions this particular woman's name, I inevitably belt out this song. It always pops up if I do anything involving somebody <laughs> called Christine. This immediately starts playing in my head. I really love Susie and the Banshees. I think she's just got such a fantastic voice. You can instantly tell it's her. And they were—I uh, was driving along yesterday, I think, and uh, Stephen Matt played Spellbound on Six Music, oh. and I, I instantly knew within Before I recognised what song it was, I knew it was Susie Sue within about five seconds. But I think this probably is. There are so many Susie and the Banshee songs that I really like, so it's difficult to pick a favourite. But I've always really enjoyed this. And I love her vocal on this. I think it is so... She doesn't muck about, does she? She's absolutely going for this. And the album Kaleidoscope, released in 1980, so another record that's 45 years old next year, I regret to inform you, that is uh, Christine by Susie and the Banshees. Now
2: she's in purple, now she's a turtle. It is. (laughs) my favourite Susie track by Absolute Miles. I absolutely adore that. Play it often,
4: yeah.
3: It's terrific. Also, in... Covered by Red Hot Chili Peppers at their V two thousand and one festival performance about it with John Fruscianti on guitar, and by your your faves, Simple Minds on the deluxe edition of their Graffiti Soul album in two thousand nine. So you may wish to you may wish to check that out, sir T.
2: (laughs) Stuart Sutcliffe's life Mm. was sadly very short. He he died aged only twenty one. But in his last five years, he he squeezed in a huge amount of living. Mm. Um, Sutcliffe, he was the original bass player with the Beatles, Mm. including their time in Hamburg in the early 1960s. While in Germany, he met Astrid Kircher and falling for her led him to leaving the Beatles, staying on in Hamburg Mm. and rejigging his life as an art student. But very sadly, as we say, he died... Uh, of a brain hemorrhage actually while living in mm. hamburg with astrid he was only 21 well now the manager of his estate has decided to put his archive up for sale 400 paintings and drawings and some poems but jules i mean do you think it will be the beatles related items which i believe are letters and photographs it seems that would generate the most interest here
3: Inevitably, yes, of course. Why wouldn't they really? And, you know, Stuart Sutcliffe, you could argue, as talented, as deeply talented as he very clearly was, is only really known to the world because of his involvement with the Beatles. Um, I think people are always going to be fascinated with him, partly because he's a very talented man. Um, This Guardian piece speaking about, um, written by Ben Beaumont Thomas, speaking about the, uh, the the auction, um quotes from his um letters um to his sister history is my father and tomorrow is my son before uh, before pausing his studies to go to hamburg and he told his sister I've become very popular both with girls and homosexuals who tell me I'm the sweetest, uh, most beautiful boy. Well good for Stuart for being open to having multiple fan bases there. Interestingly the Be- You could argue this alternative history angle, would if he had lived, would he have stayed in them? He chose not to stay in them in his lifetime, or will point out. He'd met Astrid and decided to stay in, in Hamburg um, and in Germany. And you could argue, would the Beatles have been successful if he'd stayed in them? ultimately it was the chemistry of the four of them that made them what they were i suspect that they'd have worked it out themselves or someone else might have spotted it i wonder um george martin was very astute wasn't he i suspect he might have spotted it and interestingly this is one of those sort of butterfly effect moments in history he lent his base to paul mccartney and that was that wasn't it really so um so i've always tragic that he died of a brain hemorrhage at age 21, depicted in the film Backbeat, um, the fictionalized account of the Beatles for the Hamburg years. I, you know, I thought he was, you know, everything that I've read of his or sort of things that I've seen of his he, he was so stylish and so talented I'm so sorry that he never got a chance to realise his artistic potential outside of the Beatles. Um which I suspect he would have remained even if he had lived, I think. So um, So I can see why people are so fascinated because alternative histories and what-ifs are always fascinating, aren't they?
2: Well, they are. I mean, Stuart's sister Pauline wrote a, a book in 2001 called "The Beatles' Shadow: Stuart Sutcliffe mm, and I His Think, Lonely Hearts Club," which is a terrible I keep, title.
3: I way. know, terrible, but I keep meaning to read it because it sounds really good.
2: Well, it's funny you say that because I thought when I I, I didn't know I didn't know she mm. I ordered it and it arrived here this morning. I've got it in my mm. hand now, um, and I'm gonna I'm really looking forward to mm. reading this. Uh, just in the, in the. Um, in the inside cover here just she um she became a psychotherapist she Mm. retrained later in life and became a psychotherapist so i think think. you know her story will be quite interesting but there was there's one quote uh, that i wanted to read it's a rather sad quote from pauline Sutcliffe about selling her brother's estate And it's this, I would feel then, when when she sells it, I mm. would feel then that I had done my bit and would be able to free myself from the Beatles. I've been trapped by them most of my mm. life. I wanted to say goodbye. I mean, that's really sad.
3: That is. Uh, I can God. understand it, though, isn't it, really? Particularly as, let's face it, Stuart wasn't even really in the Beatles, as they were no. known, was he? No. Really? So, yes, I can absolutely see how like you say, how sad to be tracked by something that didn't, that sort of didn't happen in a way, rather than something that sort of did, really. Um, interestingly, um, it's the, the archives administrator is, who, so Pauline sadly died in 2019, yes. so the archives administrator is Diane Vital, and she said she wanted to keep it preserved whole. And She said, I want to keep it together. That's Pauline's dream from the very beginning. She said that it might be that the artifacts could go to a museum or university, then the major art, about hundred and 50 pieces that have been widely exhibited would go to a collector that's probably realistic you know what I really admire people that are realistic about what collections mean and what collections won't mean mm. that is someone that is a professional in the arts industry isn't it rather than someone that has you know 30,000 p- items from the who and you know wildly overestimates their own worth as I think has happened when we've talked about auctions and things in yes. the past so, um, so yes, it's 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 you know it's always interesting. It's always interesting to think what if. And as you, you and I both know, and as we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, the bit, there always seems to be a new angle to the Beatles, doesn't there? And a new a uh, new sort of a new sort of section of interest.
2: That's right. But if you um, want you want to find more about the sale of, of Stuart Sutcliffe's uh, archive, uh, the website you need is Stuart Sutcliffe Art dot com hmm. uh, if you want to find out more well like the like the late uh pauline sutcliffe i too have been trapped by the beatles all of my life but i found it a much more positive experience and uh yeah, well, i suppose as you and i have um, pondered here on many occasions um as you've just alluded to really just when you think there's nothing more to uh find out or listen to that's beatles related here comes paul mccartney with a band on the run 50th anniversary reissue with of course the inevitable deluxe editions 2 LP set, 2 CD set with posters and whatnot. but the intriguing part is that along with Giles Martin's new mix in Dolby Atmos um, comes band on the run underdubbed mm. mixes, uh, the original sound created by Jeff Emmerich in October 1973 before Tony Visconti took over to create the version that we've all heard over the years. Jules, you've had a chance to listen to Band on the Run underdubbed. What do you make of it?
3: Well, I, I almost feel Uh-oh. like I should should be writing for Smash Hits here and say band <laughs> on the run, underdone, am I right? Um, I couldn't really, there are only a couple of songs on this where I really felt there was any ostensible difference. I felt like I was in some sort of parallel universe. I kept having to stop and check. I was actually listening to the, to the underdubbed version and not the original version. I struggled to see the point in much of this, Terence. I might have—I might have this wrong. I might have not been listening properly. I made sure I listened on headphones. I just a lot of these so-called changes or under tweaks or you know, I didn't really feel this was. I tell you what, I thought was really good. Let It Be Naked was fantastic. I thought that reimagining mm. Let It Be by the Beatles a few years taking ago, taking
2: out all of the yes. specters over the Torrible, top,
3: horrible gloopy Disney strings. Yes, and making it making it sort of much nicer. I felt, firstly, that actually I thought Band on the Run, its original production suited it. I didn't think it was overblown. I thought it was quite good. But secondly, even if that was the aim, I wasn't really sure about how much had changed, really. Have I missed something?
2: Well, I think you may have, if you'll forgive Mm. me. I mean, mean, first of all, Band on the Run is an extraordinary album created in extreme conditions. Um, Mm. And Henry McCulloch, guitarist and drummer Denny Saul, quit just before the recording, which took place, as most of us know, somewhat randomly in the yes. Lagos, Nigeria. But um, I, I would still argue that it's the most co- cohesive album yes. of any of Paul McCartney's post Beatles work. Yes, I would but say. So. No, this, I absolutely loved hearing it in mm, this new one form. Okay. And um, I, even more so, I think I'm fairly sure that when I play uh, the album Band on the Run in the Future, it will be to this mix that I'll return. I That'd really. Interesting. How much of a role McCartney himself played in this uh, new old mix is not defined. But as Mm. so often, um, when Paul releases new versions, the bass is always brought really high in the mix throughout. But Mm. also here, I thought the vocals are cleaner and clearer. Drums are sharp. Separation is wonderfully done. Um, I think Tony Visconti himself has said that uh, his... um, overdubs as it were 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 really rushed it was done uh, at the last minute mm. um, and and it was a, you know, to get the album out quickly he had to do it in a really short time span i think 2 or 3 weeks so listening to it back here i think it's well worth a listen I, I heard it through Spotify, and that's where you can hear it. You know, If you don't want to buy the thing first, you just want to preview it, you can um, hear the underdub mixes on Spotify. I thought it sounded great.
3: Fair enough. I mean, I I love the album anyway. I just didn't mm, think course. it sounded very different, was my mm, view. Okay. But um, but yes, I I it's quite possible that I need to go and have my ear syringed. Well, we,
2: we we're going to have a chance to hear uh, one track now, but there is more. There's more to come, including eye watering theatre ticket prices, <laughs> and a remarkable night out at the Sam Wanamaker Theatre in London. Um, that's next but it's uh, it's after one of those new old mixes mm. I think one of the ones that we both felt um, had substantial change yes, to it this is the only one it. that
3: I thought to my ear sounded very different
2: and this is of course from uh, Band on the Run underdubbed Paul McCartney and Wings yeah. So vibrant and fresh to me from the new release band on the run, Underdub Mixes, originally the album made number one in the UK and on Billboard in 1973, Paul McCartney, Wings and
3: Jets. I mean, I have to say, I agree with you. That that sounded good because mm. it sounded different to me, and I thought yeah. that was that was worth hearing.
2: I wonder if there's anything to do with that one standing out because it was the only track on Band on the Run that was not recorded in Lagos. It was recorded at George Martin's Air Studios in Oxford Street. So I don't oh, know whether you know that had yes. something to do with with you know making it easier to to sound a, a little bit different. Uh, I was talking to some friends the other day about the cost of buying tickets for football matches. And this was after Chelsea reached the League Cup final at Wembley and finding out how much we will have to pay for the privilege Mm. of being thrashed by Liverpool later in the month. And, uh, of course, once again, I feel out of touch because everything in terms of entertainment, the cost of attending anything now, seems to have gone through the roof since Covid. Mm. Um, it's, It's now a regular occurrence to see ticket prices for gigs at places like Wembley Arena or the O2 to go way, way beyond mm. £100. That's your most basic ticket. Yes. I randomly selected Barry Manilow at the London Palladium. Mm. He's playing there in May of 2024. £190 per ticket. You know, oh. Um Sarah oh. Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick mm. are currently appearing at the Savoy Theatre in London. Uh, the play described this week in The Spectator as meandering flat and witless. Uh,
3: <laughs> Excellent, thanks for that. <laughs>
2: came straight to the point there, didn't they? Ticket prices in the stalls for this at the Savoy, £300 oh. each without any extras. And I've got, I know people will still attend these offerings, but my fear, Jules, uh, Jules is that Next generations of potential theatre goers just won't even consider going to these things. And only wealthy British and overseas tourists are in the market for theatre and many, many gigs now as well.
3: Well, yes, that is the fear, isn't it, really? I mean, so I, I go to, we'll we will talk about my latest theatre visit shortly, but um, we go to the theatre quite a lot. Uh, my My girlfriend really likes going, as a result of which she is... Um, uh, on some sort of membership type thing, I don't quite understand it. But um, as a result of which, she gets access to reduced tickets at the National oh. Theatre because she goes so frequently that it sort of pays for itself. And I think things like that yeah. are probably the way forward when it comes down to it. That's how we're able to go for. Can I just
2: um, ask you? I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah, Can I ask you? Are those tickets that you get through this scheme? Are they like back row of the most upper gallery? No, or are, they, no, are they're, they're, pretty, they're
3: pretty decent. The, the, the tickets. It's that um, that we went to see this play that well, I will speak about briefly were well, Roe yeah. B. So so you know oh, we get we play. get pretty yeah, good yeah, yeah. pretty good tickets as a result. And and I, you know, I, I I'm someone that just she organises it, I just send the money through Monzo. So so I, I'm not so um and I'm, I'm not it's not that I'm not involved in this. It's just that, you know, I don't That's I don't sad, yeah. you know I, I, I I'm okay. not so involved in the process so I just uh-huh. send the money. But um we, we seem to be able to get decent tickets for things. And I, and I suspect some of this might be to do with her sort of, you know, getting, getting kind of early tickets or that sort of thing because of, mm-hmm. of her membership. But we seem to get tickets to sort of about 40 or 50 quid for things at the Nationals. So so it's not seemed, it, I mean, I think it could be, we, we, we bought tickets to see, um, we have bought tickets to see Keely Hawes and Jack Davenport in a new play at the Donma Warehouse um and we're going on the on a saturday night in a few weeks time and my share was forty pounds. but My ticket was forty pounds well, plus booking fee. That's not bad. Fee, so there's quite a disparity, is isn't there, yes, between there these three
2: hundred quidders and your um, absolutely. And, I,
3: and again, I think the ticket, the ticket that I got for this this play, at the at the, at the Sam Wanamaker Ghost by Ibsen, I think I paid thirty five pounds plus booking fee for that. Okay. So it is possible to do this reasonably. Right. I think if you sign up to sort of pre release mailing lists and, th- lists and things mm. like that, what I suspect is that these tickets to some extent might be resale tickets in some in some cases um so my experience is not that everything costs 300 pounds i must say although i suppose it depends what you're going to see and you know the stuff that we've seen. I've really, you know, we've really enjoyed. And some, you know, some tickets are not always are not always cheap. We paid sixty pounds each to go to Sadler's Wells, but that was at Christmas to see the Matthew Bourne production of Edward Scissorhands. And again, I thought those were pretty good seats mm. in the sort of second second tier, and it was really good. So, so you know, okay. it is, it, it's perhaps not as bad as all that. Although I do take the point that that if theatre feels the need to move towards these big star productions that are not very good in reality then it really will hollow itself out become about the sort of tourist track yeah. market which would be sad. I understand
2: that the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse on the South Bank of the mm. Thames is modelled on the candlelit theatres of Shakespeare's London and last week there were performances of Hendrik Ibsen's Ghosts and Jules they were lucky enough that you graciously attended.
3: <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm sure they were thrilled that we were sat in Roe B. But I'd never been there before. And so we went. And the San Juan Omega Theatre, as you rightly say, is sort of based on the Shakespearean Candlelit Theatre. It's in the Globe Theatre complex, but it's not the Globe Theatre itself. It is a separate mm. theatre. As was pointed out to me at great length because I completely got that wrong. So apparently that is what happened. It is lit only by candlelight. Oh, lovely. Only by candlelight to the point where the actors in the play that we saw, Ghost by Henry Gibson, um, lit them themselves at the beginning. So they're on these big metal, like, candelabra type things. And they're actual candles. Like cause I actually said, are these sort of those fake candles that my mum yeah. got? Going on with a remote, no, there are actually real candles, and so the two of the actors lit the candles themselves, and all these huge metal things that then is beautifully done are then gradually hoisted sort of up so that they so they they're, so, so they sort of moved up. So we went to see this play Ghost, and um, it had a, a, a cast of kind of very sort of well known. Theatre actors, um, the sort of star name, quote unquote, was a woman called Hattie Moraghan who's been in lots of things on TV. She mm. got a big break. The BBC did a, a new version of Sense and Sensibility some years ago and she was Eleanor Dashwood in that. She also had some had, had some sort regular appearances as the mum's chaotic friend in Outnumbered that kept turning up after she'd been dumped by someone. She's <laughs> she worked we looked at the programme, she's worked constantly for about fifteen years it would seem. So so we were very much looking forward to this play. And and so we're all sort of... It's, it's it's very, it is almost Shakespearean. So you sit on these sort of round kind of, it's sort of done like sort of in a, in a semicircle. So you s- literally sit on these kind of stalls and you're all sort of smashed in next to each other. It's it's not the most comfortable place I've ever sat, but it was, it, and I was very glad, I have to say, by the end we were watching a play that went straight through with no interval that was not very long. So actually that, that kind of suited me. So we were all sort of shuffled in. It was very exciting to be there. And we were seeing the penultimate play of the the ultimate performance of this play's run. So we were at the Sunday matinee. So we went to the the matinee was at one o'clock and then the evening performance was at half six and that was the last performance of the run. Mm -hmm. So we all sat down, and I didn't really know the play. I like Ibsen, but I, I didn't know this play. But it looked interesting. Um, had a lot of time. Hattie Moraghan really wanted to go to this place, Happy to do it. So, so we sat down, and, you know, everyone was sort of shuffled in, and and it was a little bit kind of just move your legs so someone can get past you and all that kind of stuff. And we eventually all settled in and locked in, and the doors were shut, and it really was pitch black. And mm-hmm. the, it was a very interesting sort of stage set in that it was quite a small stage, the floor was entirely made up of a sort of red rug carpet thing that was long-haired, which some of the characters then rolled in at one point, which was quite interesting. So, (laughs) So there was that the back wall was entirely mirrored. And if you sort of search this production and search reviews, there's mm. some brilliant kind of production shots of Patti Moraghan and various actors in it sort of being reflected in these, in these mirrors. So we started watching it and it was incredibly well acted. And it was a, a fairly small cast of I think for about five people. And there was a sort of an older man that obviously had a sort of comedy role that came on at the beginning. And... It was it was really good, and we were, you know, it was, it was really we were really enjoying it. And we were, I think, about halfway through, and things were really sort of building to an emotional climax. And two or three of the characters were on the floor at this point, and there was sort of a parentage of someone had been revealed to be untrue and to be something else, and the say st- the sort of stage was being set for this sort of character that was meant to be someone's father who would in the beginning to come back on. And the mirror door, the mirrors slid open to reveal a door at the back, which was very dramatic. And a woman stepped out, all in black, wearing a very modern-looking fleece, which nobody else was wearing because they were all in period dress. And I thought, this is very avant-garde. Hmm. I wasn't quite mm-hmm. expecting this. At which point, this woman said, "Hi, everybody. My name's Rachel. I'm the stage manager here. Um, I'm very sorry to interrupt." Um, we're going to have to take a pause in this for a moment. Um, so, if everyone could just sort of stay calm and, and stay in your seats. If I could out- ask the actors to come off stage, please, at which point, Paul Hattie Morahan and the other two get up off the floor and are sort of, you know, kindly chefed oh, away by Rachel, who then says, um, So, we're just going to take a pause there. And okay. if I could just ask for your patience for a few minutes, that would be great. And then they all go hmm. off back through the mirrors, which are then slid shut. And the door is open so people can see because otherwise, you know, we, we might not be able to see. And I heard someone say rather well, dryly behind me, Well, if either something's on fire or someone's been taken yeah. ill. Yeah. To which, uh, which we said, Well, I hope it's not a fire because um, this is, yeah, what we started wondering about the health and safety. So we were all sort of chatting away and we had a nice conversation with the women behind us. And then after about five minutes or so, the door slid open again. Rachel reemerged in her fleece and said, um, and said uh, thank you, everybody. Um, and so it turned out that uh, Greg Hicks, who was the actor that we'd seen at the beginning, had been taken ill and was no longer able to continue. Oh, my Lord. Um, I have Googled. I haven't seen any announcements, any sort of serious announcement. Yeah. involved. So I hope he's okay. And sure. she said that a man who I think she said was called Alex... Who was obviously one of the crew was going to be the stand-in. So, right? our excellent stand-in Alex is going to stand in. So, we're just going to rewind for a, you know, for a, a couple of for a, a couple of moments before we stopped, and then, you know, we'll continue. At which point, the three actors came back on stage, laid back on the floor, um, and How then there's nothing. At- happened, continued their scene, at which point Alex, dressed all in black like Rachel was, came on bless him, holding the book with a little reading light tapped across it. So that was oh, the one sort of uh, he had to have that, I think, because he wouldn't have been able to see it in candlelight. Um and read beautifully, and was very funny, and everyone very much enjoyed Alex's performance. And then they got to the end of the play, and, and Hadi Moran got a big cheer at the end, who so was really outstanding. Um, they, there was a lot of the play took place, because I, I can't emphasise enough how small this space was. Really? But they actually, at one point, all five actors sat on the edge of the stage, and we were in row B, so they were about three and a half metres from me, and at one point, <laughs> Hattie Moraghan then walked down the aisle and gave a big speech about a metre from us, and um, and she got a big cheer at the end, and Alex got a big special cheer and was, and was you know, <laughs> was by by everybody, and then that was it, and it was one of the most peculiar things I've yeah. ever seen happen halfway through but fair play to the staff there for handling it so well well done to the actors who got themselves right back in at the worst possible moment it was you know it was it was such a moment for their flow to be interrupted and well done to heroic alex who bless him was you know shepherded on with his little reading light and did a fantastic job and i hope that greg hicks is well but it was not what one expects but it it was Very impressive how everybody dealt with it, a moment of really what could have been a near disaster in a five-man cast, frankly.
2: What an amazing story. I mean, it just shows... Um how necessary understudies are you mean they, they don't go on they don't go on they don't go on for maybe a week maybe two weeks three weeks no, exactly. and then suddenly boom you're on
3: exactly <laughs> without any notice yeah, play as well. Well, because this man had done, well done you know he'd done the opening scenes and yes. he said afterwards they were lucky that it was well I'm sorry for the poor actor yeah. but there was you know there was, a, there was a, a, a male role that was it was the smaller of the three male roles in the play and of of the five in total, and had it been sort of you know somebody like Paul Hilton or Stuart Thompson who had much bigger roles, I'm not sure what they would have done. As we said, what had happened? What would have happened if it had been Hattie Morahanna, who was the sort well, of the main role in the play. It was it was Maybe Alex to, would
2: have had to have stepped in there too.
3: Well, quite possibly. Who knows? But I mean he did a fantastic job. Yeah. But we just kind of said, gosh, not one of those things you sort of expect really, when it when it sort of happened. But it just goes to show that they as we said, well they must do all this contingency planning. Yeah. Because actually we were admired how professionally Rachel handled it. But But it was just the fact that, and the actors were pretty sort of chill as well, it was the fact that the door slid open. I was like, oh, (laughs) "Oh, hang on, this is quite good. I I thought, oh, it's just like Quantum Leap or something, (laughs) you know, where someone just wanders in at random. But no, not what one expects, but it just goes to show the professionality of people that work in theatres and just how big a team it takes for a a relatively small class play that was quite short. Um, it, It just goes to show sort of how professional those people are really and also it was a beautiful space to watch a play and of course they all snuffed the candles out at the end again as part of the action and it was it was a genuinely one-off experience not just the chaos that erupted in the middle of the play but it was a beautiful place to watch theater so and and like i say we got tickets at a reasonable price so i would very much recommend recommend it as an experience it was great
2: that was the the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, and I've mm. got um, uh, an odd story. Really, it's very name-droppy. Oh, go um, on. Why about not? Sam Wanamaker? Well, mm. I met I met Sam Wanamaker in the in the late eighties. Um, I was working from home, writing for Radio Two, Radio Four, Central TV. I was really really busy. And uh, working from the home time.
3: before it was fashionable. Once again, a pioneer. I would
2: point and out. A, yes, absolutely. I, I, I trailblazer. I would call myself. As always. Um, so being really busy, of course, I looked for any excuse not to sit at my desk. And most lunch times, I used to go to a pub in Winkfield, which was just up the road near where I lived, for an hour or two. And mm. um, strangely enough, I got to know Major Ronnie Ferguson, the father of mm. Sarah Ferguson, the uh, what's it, Gosh, Duchess how of strange Europe, yeah. Yes. Major Remy Ferguson, he was polo manager at the Royal County of Berkshire Polo Club, which was literally just up the road, Mm. 200 yards up the road. And the Polo Club was owned by Brian Morrison, who was manager of Pink Floyd. Mm. Anyway, this unlikely friendship, Major Ronnie and I often, um, it's quite a pub, not that many people in it, but lovely place, could get a mm. nice lunch there. We often shared a table and we used to attempt to do um, the Times cryptic crossword. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. and, I know this gets more bizarre. but I know,
3: I'm quite enjoying the journey I must yeah, say.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now one day he was sort of swatting around when I arrived, r- rowdly, r- mm. rather loudly introducing everyone in the pub to his hmm. friend, as he called him, Sam Wanamaker, hmm. Zoe's dad, Sam Wanamaker. Okay, and yeah. eventually steered him to my table. And knowing that I worked in TV and radio, Sam hmm. Wanamaker talked to me about how close he was getting to completing his life. Work The Reconstruction of the Globe Theatre.
4: Oh, great. And
2: he reappeared a few times over the the next uh, few weeks and asked if I could could help in any way. So I don't know why I did this, but I was working with them at the time and they were the most famous people that I knew. So I introduced him to Rory Bremner and John Sessions, who I was working with um, Hmm. at the time. Now, whether they helped raise any money, I don't know. But, of course, poor old Sam died a couple of years later. And it was Mm. really sad because it was uh, just only a couple of years before his project was um,
3: very successfully complete. Such a pity. Such a pity. So that's my Sam Wanamaker story. Well, well done. Well done done Uh, to be the connecting person, the man that makes it all happen. Exactly.
2: Thanks very much for listening this week. Good to have you along.
3: Very much agree. Always a pleasure to be with Terence and with you.
2: <laughs> Who is this fellow Arthur Russell,
3: Jules? Ah, Arthur Russell. Now that is there's a question. Um Arthur Russell is a sort of New York kind of um, a, a sort of a, a house person i would say um a very interesting fellow um he and he's done some incredible music and one of which um are this band that i'm going to play you now he was sadly only with us for for uh, only 40 years but he was very much involved in some very interesting music um from the sort of um the the, the kitchen area of new york and the avant garde scene i came across this track um of on a brilliant compilation that I bought for another track but very much enjoyed yeah, this. It's called okay. Disco, not Disco. And it's um described as Leftfield Disco Classics from the New York Underground. Um this compilation originally came out twenty five years ago. It's been reissued a couple of times. My vinyl copies are reissued. They're about to reissue it again really? on Yellow Vinyl Triple L P amongst other things. I originally bought this because it had the excellent joey negro re-edit of um yoko ono's walking on thin ice so that was originally what drew this to me and also it had a cabin by liquid liquid on it which is the base for, for uh, white lines by a uh, grandmaster flash oh, etc yes, yes. the dum-dum-dum-dum-dum came from that right. but um i was djing out live and um, between bands and event ages ago and had this compilation and i Decided. We well, you know what. I never listened to the second side of this first. This first sort of record on this, and this was the first track on the other side. And. I suddenly realised how good it was and how much I love this song. It's really brilliant. Um, I find it so uplifting. It's got a lovely funky start and then when all the sort of vocals come in together, it, it, it makes me feel happy and it makes me feel very sunny and I think it's a lovely track about sort of expressing how you feel about someone and how people that we like in our lives can make us happy. So I love this. This is Loose Joint, uh, led correctly by Arthur Russell, as Sir Terence said, and this is Tell You Brackets Today. Close Brackets. Okay. listening to a parish council production
1: there's a choice we're making we're saving our own lives it's true we make a better day for you and me
0: is that sort of it sort of like that